Welcome to this podcast from the Carter Center. Good afternoon. Uh, my name is David Carroll. I'm the director of the Democracy Program at the Carter Center. I'd like to welcome you here to our uh, public panel discussion on two Palestines, what is risked by a West Bank First policy. Uh, we're very pleased to have on this distinguished panel with us today uh, three very knowledgeable people about what's happening in the Middle East. Uh, on the far left is uh, William Sieghart. Uh, in the middle, um, Dr. Mustafa Barghouti. And to my immediate left, uh, Daniel Levy. I'll give more uh, complete bioinformation on them in a second. Um, I just wanted to say a few things uh, briefly here about the context of, of this discussion and a few things about the format and uh, how we want to proceed today. Uh, I'm sure you all know that uh, President Carter has had a long personal interest in, in the Middle East and in Palestine, but this also has been an interest of the Carter Center for uh, a good 10 years or more. We've been working uh, intensively for at least 10 years trying to support uh, Middle East peace and also to strengthen democracy uh, in the Palestinian territories. Uh, our efforts have been focused on the main goal of trying to build what we hope will be the precursors of strong democratic institutions in a future Palestinian state. And seeing that as being a critical element to ultimately having sustainable peace in the region. Uh, some of the principal activities we've been involved with have been uh, election monitoring activities. Uh, first in 1996, the uh, election following the Oslo Accords where Yasser Arafat was elected president. And uh, nine years after that, shortly after Yasser Arafat died, we returned and we observed elections in 2005, which uh, resulted in the election of Mahmoud Abbas as president. And one year after that, a little more than a year ago, a year and a half ago, uh, in early 2006 for the last uh, elections in Palestine for the uh, Legislative Council elections. As you'll recall, those were extremely important in, to the extent that what resulted from that to the surprise of many was uh, a, a victory by Hamas in which they won 74 of 132 seats in the Legislative Council and were confronted, as was everybody else, with the reality that Hamas was now going to be expected to govern. They uh, formed a government which was short-lived. Uh, after uh, a, a period of turmoil, there was uh, negotiations which led to the formation of a, of a national unity government in March, and that uh, has collapsed in June. Behind the collapse of both of these governments, though, has been strong opposition from the West, the United States in particular, but also from the International Quartet, who have made uh, engagement with uh, Hamas or any government that includes Hamas contingent on uh, Hamas recognizing Israel's right to exist, renouncing violence, and accepting past agreements. Uh, which leads us to the policy of uh, the question for, for today's panel. Uh, with the uh, violence and the turmoil in Gaza and the resultant uh, outcome that Hamas is now uh, controlling Gaza, the United States and others are contemplating very seriously what's being called a West Bank First policy. And we're hoping that our panelists will, will shed uh, some light on these discussions and help inform the current debate. Um, the way we'd like to proceed is um, I've put together some very general questions that I'd like to ask each of the panelists. I, I will uh, read them aloud now, actually. And we would then go through them and uh, give each of the panelists time to respond to those and to related questions. 
uh, and to comment on those. Uh, and at the conclusion of that, to try to save 15 minutes or 20 minutes or so at the end of this session for questions from the audience. If you uh, would like to submit a question, we ask that you fill out these, uh, I guess they're index cards, during the session, and they'll be collected by peer people in the, in the auditorium. Uh, and will be then up, brought to me, and uh, I can then put those to the panel. <coughs> so uh, if we can go ahead and proceed, I'd like to uh, introduce first um, William Seacart. And forgive me for, uh, for reading their bios, because I don't have it all committed to memory. Uh, William Seacart is the founder and chairman of Forward Thinking, an independent UK charity founded in April 2004 to address the growing social isolation of Muslim communities in Britain and to promote a more inclusive peace process in the Middle East. Um, in the middle we have Dr. Mustafa Barghouti, former Minister of Information in the National Unity Government and the Secretary of the uh, Palestinian National Initiative, or Mubadara a recently established democratic opposition movement. Dr. Barghouti was one of the delegates involved in the Madrid peace negotiations in 1991. He was a member of the steering committee of the technical committee that prepared uh, various Palestinian ministries. He's also been a presidential candidate. And, oh yes, minister in the last national unity government. Uh, to my immediate left, Daniel Levy, senior fellow and director of the Middle East <coughs> Policy Initiative of the American Strategy Program at the New America Foundation. He was a lead drafter of the Geneva Initiative, lead Israeli drafter of the Geneva Initiative, and directed policy planning and international efforts at the Geneva Campaign Headquarters in Tel Aviv. Previously, Mr. Levy served as senior policy advisor to former Israeli Minister of Justice Yossi Balin, and under the Barak government, he worked in the Prime Minister's office as a special advisor and head of the Jerusalem Affairs Unit. He was also a member of the Israeli delegation to the Tabata negotiations with the Palestinians in 2001, and of the negotiating team for the Oslo B Agreement under uh, Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. So again, welcome to each of you. I look forward to today's discussion. Um, I'm going to read the uh, five questions very briefly so you can see what it is we, we hope to, to discuss here, and that may also impact uh, questions you might want to put forward, and then uh, focus on the first one uh, to all the panelists. In order for, to help us collectively here, understand the breadth of viewpoints in Israel, Palestine, and among Islamists across the region. I'd like to ask each of the panelists if they might briefly describe the range of views involved in those uh, countries, Israel, Palestine, and also uh, in Islamists in the region. And for that, I'd like if uh, Dr. Barghouti could talk about the Palestinian side, Daniel about Israeli side, and William about Islamists in the region. Secondly, I'd like us to focus very concretely on what is wrong with the West Bank First policy after establishing some range of viewpoints. Third, uh, if there's things wrong with the West Bank First policy, what is a realistic alternative? And if it were to involve contact with Hamas, the question is why should the US and West engage with Hamas while they still reject Israel and refuse to renounce violence? Four, what are the key external actors in the region and what are their interests? And uh, what is the most constructive uh, role and policy the US could adopt in this respect? And lastly, time permitting, is a two-state solution still a viable option for peace, regardless of uh, the questions today about a, a West Bank First policy? So with that, I, if I can start with the first question, and maybe we can proceed uh, this way first with Daniel, Dr. Barghouti, and, and, and William Seacart. Um, if you could describe uh, 
the range of viewpoints in Israel, Daniel? I, I think that the, and thank you, David, for, for, for that, that introduction and the Carter Center for hosting us here today and for you joining us on your Friday lunchtime. Um, I think one could probably de describe something that's consensual today in Israel as being a deep sense of malaise. Um, yesterday was the one year anniversary of the start of the um, war last summer fought in Lebanon, but fought between Israel and the Hezbollah ostensibly. Um, and I think uh, Israel lost, lost a lot of its self-confidence as a consequence of, uh, of that conflict last summer. And I, and I say, say a shared sense of malaise because I think from across the political <coughs> spectrum, the sense is that all the options were tried and all were found wanting. And whether that perception is accurate or not, I think that is the perception amongst Israelis. What I mean by that is you had the Barak effort seven years ago this month while the talks at Camp David, hosted by then President Clinton, <coughs> with then Palestinian leader Arafat, Israeli Prime Minister Barak. And the sense was that the big negotiated, let's close all the issues, that that effort was tried and that that couldn't deliver. And that Barak made the most generous offer and the response was rejection and violence. Even if I would argue historically that that, that, that is an inaccurate interpretation of what went on, that was the perception. Then Barak went out, Sharon came in, and it was, there's no political solution, there's no partner. We can, we can resolve this militarily. The, the then chief of staff of the Israeli Defense Forces came out with, with, with a, a, a statement that has stuck in many Israelis' mind, which is, we will etch into the consciousness of the Palestinians the acceptance of Israel and the, inner, uh, the unusefulness of violence. And we were told over several months there would be newspaper headlines screaming at us saying, now we have the solution to terror. If you destroy the homes of the families of the suicide bombers, or if we re-enter and clean out village X, or if you assassinate the head of the terror group, because of course a new head will, will not come along, obviously. So as long as you assassinate the head, then you'll defeat terror. And of course this was all found wanting. And there was no military solution. <clears throat> then, then Sharon did something which at least in, in the lexicon uh, and in terms of its implementation was very new, which is, you know what? If you can't negotiate with them, and if you can't defeat them, but if you know that you, you want to separate between you and them, then maybe we just have to say unilaterally, Israel will do what's right for Israel and not take into account the Palestinian side. So Israel unilaterally withdrew from Gaza. As if you remember in August of 2005, the 7,000 odd Israeli settlers and the settlements there. Now, many of us at the time criticized this not because we were against leaving Gaza, but because we felt doing it unilaterally, doing it not as part of a broader process of building a stable two-state solution, but as really throwing away the key. And as the prime minister at the time said, this was actually a punishment for the Palestinians because Israel would, would, would strengthen its grip on the West Bank at the same time, that this would be a short-sighted policy. But nonetheless, it was, a, it was a new effort. And again, this was found to come up short. 
as the uh, as as in Israeli eyes and, and the reality on the ground in southern Israel was one of, uh, of of continued violence emanating from Gaza, even post withdrawal against Israel. Of course, Gaza remains very much at the uh, survival in Gaza remains very much at the whim of Israeli policy. So. I, I, I describe that sense of malaise in Israel because the perception is that these options were tried. And where do we go from here? Now, of course, you still have an Israel divided into political camps and political parties. And I won't bore you with, with, with the, the, the almost unmanageable political map that is the Israeli Knesset, where we manage in a parliament of 120 members to have something like a dozen different political parties and factions uh, functioning at any given time. I, I would probably just describe to you the following. <clears throat> there is a school of thought in Israel which is about avoiding the creation of a, of a realistic, viable Palestinian state, um, about avoiding the kind of territorial compromise that that necessitates, about avoiding the recognition of, 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 of a Palestinian national movement with which Israel has to, has to come to some kind of, of arrangement. <clears throat> Albeit that's a shrinking camp, but it still casts an enormous shadow uh, and is often still the default position for the Israeli establishment. You then have people who I would call security hawks, who understand the necessity to compromise territorially, but will always find the security reason, understandably, but, but perhaps displaying... Uh, a, a too narrow a perspective of security, because, of course, you can build all the checkpoints in the world, and there are 546 of them operational, according to the World Bank right now, in the West Bank. And maybe on any given day you'll be preventing something, but what you're sowing for the future, in terms of the humiliation, the anger, the desire for revenge, the, the sense of, of suffering that that causes is, of course, not a security solution. And then we have, if we have the security hawks, I guess the other definition I'd give is the political chickens. Those who understand what we have to do have come to a realization that, uh, that there can't be an Israel and there can't be an Israeli future without ending the occupation and without having an understanding between two competing national movements, but have not found the political gumption, have not found the political courage to implement that conviction. And perhaps there's also still a, still a visceral pushback amongst some Israelis because of the lack of trust in the other side. Um, I would probably just add one thing or, or, or two comments to that. One is I think that the debate in Israel has also been somewhat skewed by the war on terror paradigm and by the, the, an Israeli sense that this was a train worth getting on board because it would help explain to the world Israel's predicament. And I think we couldn't have been more wrong in that respect. And I actually think we do ourselves as Israel and as an Israel that wants to come to terms and needs to be accepted by its neighborhood an injustice by depicting this as an irresolvable clash of civilizations. They reject us because of who we are, not what we do. When I think the accurate prism through which to see this is the grievance prism of an occupation, of a land dispute, that can be resolved and that can lead to Israel's acceptance. And the final thing I'd say is, I don't know if those, some of you read probably in the New York Times, Tzipi Livni, 
who's our foreign minister, and, and there was an interesting piece in last Sunday's magazine, because it says something about the political journey. She came from the Likud. She's now in this centrist Kadima party. She came from a hard right home of no kind of no surrender, no concessions, and now understands the need to save Israel, to get out the territories. But I'd say that many Israelis who are in that position, I think the majority of them are, are in a sense, if I take it down to the most human level, sometimes in one's own life, one knows one has to do something. You know it's going to be unpleasant and painful. And if you can put it off, you do put it off. And I think we put it off far too long, but that's probably where the majority of Israelis are today. Thank you, Dan. Dr. Bagudi. Thank you. Uh, well, it's a rather broad question, but uh, I'll try to touch on it. I think the main problem in understanding what's happening in Palestine relates to the fact that in... Uh, and in the Israeli-Palestinian conflict is that uh, there is an overwhelming domination of the Israeli narrative in the media and the press, definitely in a country like the United States, that's for sure the problem. And... Uh, that narrative is, uh, uh, in my opinion, misleading because the issue here is not about Fatah and Hamas. These are new things in a way. The issue here is the fact that there has been a Palestinian problem since 60 years due to the dispossession of Palestinians back in 1948. And by the way, there is a fantastic book just recently came out last December by a very good Israeli historian called Ilan Pape, who described what happened in 1948. And the book's name is Ethnic Cleansing in Palestine. I mean, it's, a, it's even a more uh, challenging title <laughs> than peace, not, than not apartheid, you know? And uh, I think everybody that wants to understand the Palestinian question must, must try to read it, or at least read the summary of it. The problem has been there 60 years ago. Forty years ago, it became more complicated by Israel occupying what remained of Palestine, which is West Bank and Gaza Strip. So we have 60 years of dispossession, 40 years of occupation. This is the root of the problem. And as a person who worked very long time as a medical doctor, I'm a medical doctor by education, I tell you, the most challenging thing in uh, practice, and I think in life, is how, not, how to avoid concentrating on the symptoms and not treating the cause of the problem. And I think that applies to medicine and that applies to, to politics as well. And uh, here is a situation where frequently the world community with a very powerful media can be misled by getting confused about the results of the problem rather than concentrating on the cause of the problem. The Palestinian problem existed before Fatah, and it existed before Hamas. And had there been a solution between Israel and the Palestinian National Movement, represented by the PLO back 20 years ago, there would have been no Hamas. So this is, it's important to realize that. But since it was not resolved, and since the PLO agreed to engage in a peace process and agreed to change its political platform and accept a two-state solution based on having a Palestinian state in West Bank and Gaza, only 23% of the land of Palestine and half of what was assigned to Palestinian by Palestinians by partition UN plan. When that happened, 
and the PLO engaged in the so-called peace process and in Oslo process, the expectations was that after making this huge historical concession, we will finally have peace. And finally, Palestinians will have a little state, but a state. A small place, but a place with sovereignty where, where we could practice, uh, I mean, uh, where we could have prosperity, freedom, etc. The largest shock that happened to Palestinians is that even after their historic leader, Yasser Arafat, made all these concessions, they discovered that even with all these conditions, this is not leading to establishment of a Palestinian state. And that is the reason why many people turned to Hamas or to other groups, because they saw that the peace process is not producing. According to Oslo, by 1999, Israel should have redeployed from at least 90% of the occupied territories. And uh, by 1999, all negotiations about final status should have been finished. We're talking about issues of Jerusalem, borders, sovereignty, refugees. Of course, none of that has happened. And that is the problem. And uh, what Palestinians find themselves in now is a situation characterized by two things. First of all, they, that Israel there is no Israeli serious politician or influential politician that would be ready even to discuss the four major issues, the issue of Jerusalem, or agree in principle that uh, East Jerusalem could be split and become part of the Palestinian state or a capital of the Palestinian state. There would be no Israeli politician who would agree to allow a Palestinian state that would have sovereignty rather than just a self-governing authority on people, but not with, with real sovereignty. And there, would be, there is no Israeli serious politician who would accept that the Palestinian state would have borders with the external world. As a matter of fact, what we, engage, what we encounter now in the Israeli political spectrum is that there is almost consensus, Israeli consensus, not to allow a Palestinian state that is sovereign, not to allow a Palestinian state with borders, and not to allow Jerusalem to be a capital of the Palestinian state. So practically, there is a retreat in Israel from the idea of compromise. And as we used to say during the peace process, you can have a compromise, and you should have a compromise, but you cannot compromise the compromise. Because otherwise, you kill the process. I think this is the problem, and the result is that Instead of ending occupation, occupation has transformed to become truly an apartheid. And I can give you a few figures that prove that. The GDP per capita in Israel back in 1993 when Oslo Agreement was signed, signed was six times more than the Palestinian GDP. Now it is 30 times more than the Palestinian GDP. At the moment, Israel controls and uses 800 million cubic meters of water out of 936 million cubic meters of water that is produced in the West Bank and Gaza. On average, a Palestinian would be allowed to use no more than 50 cubic meters of water, while Israelis would be allowed, Israeli settlers, illegal settlers, will be allowed to use 2,400 cubic meters of water. Third point, on, uh, in, in, in general, now the situation is that there is complete segregation of roads and streets. There hasn't been a case like that even in the worst apartheid system in South Africa, where people, even streets cannot be used by Palestinians. They are allocated to Israelis or Israeli settlers in many cases. 
And I'm not talking about streets in Israel. I'm talking about streets in the occupied West Bank and Gaza Strip. Uh, as, uh, as was mentioned, as Daniel mentioned, 540 military checkpoints, 600 flying checkpoints. A trip that usually takes an hour and 15 minutes from a city of Jenin to Ramallah would now take something like nine hours, and it's, there is no guarantee that this can happen. So it's a very profound system of humiliation that people are subjected to. And that's why I think now, the, 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 that, that's why there, is, there are different opinions among the Palestinian people. The issue is not about Hamas or any other group not recognizing Israel. The issue is about Israel accepting mutual recognition or not. Because I am sure that the vast majority of Palestinian groups, including Hamas, would accept mutual recognition if Israel accepts to recognize that Palestine will be allowed to exist within the borders of 67. Uh, that, that is generally accepted as the proper borders of a two-state solution and uh, of a compromise. One more issue about the issue of narrative, actually. I'd like to attract the, your attention to it, Danny, which is that they keep saying Israeli withdrawal from Gaza. But there was no withdrawal from Gaza. It's a misconception. The Israeli army did not leave Gaza. What happened is a simple process of redeployment. And the proof to that is that Gaza Strip, if, if Israel withdrew from Gaza, then why Gazans cannot leave Gaza or enter Gaza without Israeli permission? The truth is that Israel took off its forces from inside Gaza, but keeps surrounding Gaza from all directions. So fishermen cannot fish, because if they go to fish in the sea, the Israeli boats would shoot at them. The Israeli planes scan Gaza by the inch around the clock. And whenever they decide that somebody is, is a bad guy, they will shoot him with a missile. Third, all entrances into Gaza and from Gaza are blocked by the Israeli side. That's why there are 6,000 Palestinians now at Rafah crossing, unable to get back. 28 of them already died because they are sick people, old people, women in labor, children who are stuck on the Egyptian side with no money, with no place to go to, with no income, with nothing. That is why the situation is a situation of a prison. I mean, when we speak to Hamas and say Gaza is not a big deal that you are in control of Gaza because you are in control of a prison from inside. But from outside, you are surrounded by Israeli army. We are talking about an area that is only 240 square kilometers inhabited by one and a half million people, becoming probably the, one of the most densely populated areas in the world with approximately 6,000 people living in every squared mile. It's an impossible situation. Uh, did I take too much of my time? Yeah. I'll just finish. One more, one, one, one last point. Finish your thought. So, in my opinion, for the Israeli ability to sustain the occupation, for Israel to sustain the oppression, the oppressive system, and to sustain a situation of avoiding peace, they had to do three processes. First process is to dehumanize Palestinians. Second is to delegitimize the Palestinian cause. And third, to keep claiming that Israel is the victim in this conflict. 
I think both sides are victims of this conflict. Not only one side is a victim in this conflict. And that's why I think the way out of this is to accept, first of all, that Palestinians are entitled to freedom. Second, that democracy must be accepted, and I'll talk about that later when we come to another question. And third, that peace can happen only if Israel agrees to negotiate with Palestinians who are unified. Thank, Thank you. you, Dr. Margui. I'd like to um, go to William Seekhart now and ask maybe, given the focus of forward thinking, if you wouldn't mind saying a few things about uh, Hamas and the degree to which there's any commonality inside uh, between Hamas and other Islamists in the region, but more generally uh, the, your views of uh, Hamas as a movement. And you might then also lead us into the next question about what's wrong with a, a first, West Bank first policy. Thank you. Well, it's hard to know what to say after two such extremely articulate interventions at the beginning, which um, I think give you a very good understanding, perhaps, of the current situation. And I think Mustafa's absolutely right. The issue that uh, some Israelis would like you to believe, people who don't want peace and don't want a two-state solution, is that it's all about the division between Hamas and Fatah. And that's, that's the tactic. And as long as there is a divided Palestinian, then there's no reason, there's no spotlight on the Israelis to force them to come to the table. And that's a very you know, effective technique which has been uh, working for a very long time now. Um, forward thinking engages um, with the people who other people won't engage with, I think it's fair to say, in a way on both sides of the divide. Um, I grew up in the United Kingdom and the scenes you might have seen a few weeks ago on the television or in your newspapers um, of Martin McGuinness and Ian Paisley um, clapping each other on the back and smiling just seemed implausible um, as I grew up. It just seemed impossible these two people would ever be in the same room together, let alone coexist in government. And I suppose people who grew up in South Africa would have said the same about what happened in South Africa not that long ago. That's what gives me a perspective that there is a route forward and there is still a potential for peace, even though there are plenty of people who will do their best to tell you that this is an insoluble problem. Um, I think that one of the main reasons why we don't have a peaceful solution, apart from the strength of those who don't want one, is the fact that our process for peaceful solutions um, up until now has been wrong. In other words, it's always been what I call an exclusive process. What's happened in the past is the United States president has put pressure on an Israeli prime minister to sit down with a Palestinian leader to do a deal, and they've been whisked off often to odd places or for Camp David's or places like that, and then they're amazed when deals don't really happen or things are torn to bits when they get home. And the reason is they've excluded all the difficult people who would actually stop a deal happening. And what the lesson of Northern Ireland, I think, showed us when you look at um, McGuinness and Paisley is, do you ever remember the names Trimble and Hume? You know, these people have disappeared off the political map. And in a way, what's been happening in both in Palestine and Israel is by the exclusion of these forces, they've become increasingly more and more powerful. Um, I believe that the only way in which you'll ever see a durable solution, a durable two-state solution, is if Hamas and the settlers and the Russians and the chasses and the religious and the ideological wings on the right of Israel are all at the table. If, if you don't have that, you haven't got a hope of a solution. I think, and just to briefly add to what Mustafa was saying, that actually the vast majority of Islamists uh, are coming around to the idea of a two-state solution based on 67 borders. Uh, there are still a few, I think, who have dream and fantasize of a, of a Palestine from the Jordan to the sea, and there are plenty of Israelis who do the same. But one of the lessons we've learned in Northern Ireland is that you can still keep those fantasies, as you might say, but you have to actually um, 
you know, come down to some pragmatic um, concessions. The IRA Sinn Féin movement, if we had said to them years um, recently uh, and over the last 10 years, we will not talk to you unless you surrender your dream of United Ireland and renounce violence, we'd still be at war with them. Um, it's perfectly plausible for you to engage with people without endorsement necessarily of their tactics and their atrocities um, and bring them to the table. And I think that uh, uh, on the Palestinian side, everyone is really ready to come to the table, um, if only they weren't so constantly stirred up and divided. Um, that's uh, my lesson I'd like to bring today, is uh, um, we need to engage everyone. Thank you, William. Would you like to say anything more directly on what's wrong with the West Bank First policy? Well, I think it's pretty straightforward. The West Bank First policy is bonkers. You know, <laughs> absolutely bonkers. I mean, whoever thinks, let's be realistic, Hamas took, what, 43% of the vote at the election? 44. 44. How can you exclude 44% of the, of, of the vote at an election if you're trying to create peace to happen? It's just implausible. Um, the West Bank First policy, the West Bank First policy simply is, is a convenient way of sustaining a small group of people who, let's face it, have a long history of corruption and a long history of rejection by their own people in power. It's as simple as that. And excluding the people who the Palestinians voted in. Um, so it, it's absolutely bonkers. It's, a, it's another way of delaying the inevitable truth. It's another way of stopping people coming to the table and everything else. And the quicker we get over this, the better. It's plainly illegal. It's plainly been very hard for the Palestinian president to even um, summon together a sensible government of uh, credible people. And um, the whole idea that uh, this government would then start doling out jobs, salaries, and so forth, but only to Fatah people and not to Hamas. I mean, it's increasingly looking like a sort of quizzling Vichy Patin government or something like that. And, you'd, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if a lot of Palestinians would describe it as a sort of bunch of collaborators. It, it doesn't help. All it helps is people who don't want, as I say, you know, a peaceful solution and everyone coming to the table and trying to sort it out. Thank you. Uh, Daniel, if I might ask, uh, maybe you could say a bit about um, what was the rationale or the thinking behind the West Bank First Policy and then any critique you might want to add. Your attribution of rationale or thinking to the policies is the first intellectual hurdle I have to overcome. Um, if I can preamble that, though, by saying that at this stage, I'm probably expected to, to push back against uh, uh, Mustafa and, and to try and, uh, and, 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 and deflect this claim of apartheid or of Gaza being a big prison. And, uh, and it gets me nowhere to try and convince you that actually the road system's not so bad or it's there because of a security need or because of terror or we were so, it was so difficult for Israel to leave Gaza and people should really be praising the courage of, of, of Israel after all these years in, 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 in confronting that internal, uh, that internal difficulty and having the showdown. And there's some partial truth in that, but, but it, it goes exactly into the trap that Mustafa pointed out because it goes to the symptom and not the cause. And, uh, and, and as William said, so today the reason for not ending the occupation is Hamas and Fatah, and tomorrow it will be Hummus and Falafel. And, <laughs> and it really... Good one. <laughs> Thank you. Um, <laughs> exactly. That's what we really should be fighting about. Um, and... 
and I would argue that the most patriotic thing that I can do as an Israeli is, is try and create the consensus at home in the region and internationally for the Israeli interest, that we have to end this lunacy of finding always a new reason why not to end the occupation, because that is, 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 is the precondition for moving forward, rather than the precondition being, being all these other things. And, 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 I, and I felt, felt I, should, I should say that to you. Um, I say that, by the way, because despite the economic indi indicators that, that Mustafa pointed out, it's something of a bubble. What, one of the things you see in Israel today, uh, you know that the European Union now has 27 member states. It's grown in the last years. One of the things you see is queues of Israelis of European extraction outside the Polish embassy, the Romanian embassy. And I'm not saying it's in the hundreds of thousands and Israel is about to empty itself, but this is a phenomenon. Getting passports to those countries, just in case. Also that I can have a job somewhere else if I, if I want to get away. And as any of you would know, that's the most, there's nothing more antithetical to the realization of, of, of what Zionism was supposed to address than such a phenomenon. And that's without even addressing the real security. The more you create this humiliation and anger, especially in today's destabilized Middle East, and if we, if we push back as we're currently doing against the Hamas, you're likely to create the kind of space in which Al-Qaeda wannabes and Al-Qaeda lookalikes are gonna take root. Al-Anbar province, we've all become geographical experts on Iraq, right? So as you know, Al-Anbar province, the distance between there, which all the reports now say is an Al-Qaeda base, and the Israeli border, the real Israeli border, well, the one I would consider to be the border, the 67 line, the distance between those two points is shorter than the distance between New York and Washington. And we now have a serious problem to address, and we can continue to stick our heads in the sand, but as I said, as, as, as an Israeli patriot, I would say that, that we do ourselves a great disservice in avoiding addressing those questions. West Bank first. You know, sometimes... I'll give one line of credit to the West Bank First policy. That perhaps the alternative that people thought was the alternative, which is let's just throw up our hands in despair and say, oh, we can't do anything anymore, would have been worse in terms of a human emotion. In other words, I prefer someone saying, okay, this is, this is an opportunity. What can we do with this new situation? But that needs to be serious. And the response, the, the, this, this so-called response that we now have clarity, we now know that in the West Bank, there's a Palestinian government of good, decent people we can deal with. And in Gaza, there's, 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 there's part of the axis of evil, if you like. It, in a way, it's less of the same. It's less of the same policy. Why? Because we, had, we, were, we, were, we were approaching the Palestinian question through that same division already. So prior to this collapse, Israel was already seeing how can you strengthen one side? How can you drive to irreconcilable? to an irreconcilable place, the Palestinian internal division, and then how can you turn one group on the Palestinian side almost into a supplicant? I wouldn't quite use the, 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 the strong language that William did, but you, know, you, can't, you can't get anywhere if on the other side of the table the person you're supposed to negotiate with you have no respect for. And that's, that's a, a, one of the real dangers. Um, of this West Bank First policy, what will happen is invariably 
what Israel is willing to do to, to ease up the situation in the West Bank will be way less than what is needed to have any serious effect. Anyway, if, you're, if your framing of the situation is that whatever we do to work with Fatah is in order to push back against Hamas, then Hamas is going to respond. Their capacity to respond in terms of a violent response by either Hamas or by other groups is, is I think, a capacity that exists. They've been willing to respect a ceasefire, but they won't respect a ceasefire under these conditions. And then we'll be back in that fabulous cycle. There'll be violence. Israel will say, well, we want to do more things, but we can't until you deal with the violence. The Palestinian leadership of Fatah doesn't have the carrying capacity to deal with that violence. And we'll be back to all the reasons that have got us to exactly where we are today. And, and it's that refusal to recognize the Middle East as it is, not as certain people in the American Enterprise Institute or other Washington think tanks that I'm not affiliated with, I'd like to think that the ones I am affiliated with are more realistic. It's that, it, it, it's that we're going to force the Middle East to confine to our framing rather than look at the Middle East as it is, that it got us exactly where we are, not just in Palestine, by the way. It's a deeply destabilized region desperately in need of a dose of realism. Thank you, Daniel. <laughs> Uh, maybe this is a good time to shift to uh, realistic alternatives to uh, uh, a West Bank First policy. And William, would you like to say something? And then Dr. Bargudi. I think what people need to understand about Hamas is that their uh, objection um, to Israel is a grievance-based objection, not an ideological objection. In other words, they're after a Palestinian state. They're not anti-Israel, they're not anti-West, they're not anti-British, anti-American, they're certainly not Al-Qaeda. Um, and the danger we have if we refuse to engage with them is that we'll make it an ideological battle. And that's the, the risk of Al-Qaeda's and Al-Qaeda-type organizations um, getting um, a, a sort of proper foothold in the West Bank and in Gaza. Um, we should engage Hamas because fundamentally they are conservative, nationalist, orthodox Muslims. Um, I think a, an analogy I would use, a story of Ghazi Hamed, who is, was the chief spokesperson for Hamas government and then for the unity government, came to Britain and came out to visit some of the young Muslim groups that we work with in the, in, um, in the Midlands in Britain. And in the car on the way home, he said, their views are pretty radical, aren't they? And I think that that, in a way, is a very useful sort of um, marking point on, on um, the sort of great scope of, of, of Islamists. And I think the great danger is, and, it, and it's one of enormous intellectual laziness, which comes across from uh, a, a, you know, a number of positions, both here and um, in Israel and, and, and in some of Europe as well, is this idea, this conflation of all Islamists as being of one kind. And, and the, you know, in the way in which I'd express it is, Imagine somebody who goes to church on, on Easter Day and Christmas Day being, being muddled with somebody, you know, a real evangelist, um, and saying that they're all the same. They just are not. And um, I think this is a problem that we've got right across the Middle East, that we traditionally, the West, have supported people, our allies, who are, broadly speaking, secular autocrats, you know, and ideally would like their sons to take over. Um, and it, the, as a result... Uh, and we, there is this growing force of, of Islamists in a lot of countries. 
And we have to engage with them because if we don't, we're going to end up with a lot of Irans on our hands because the Islamists will sweep to power one day. And if we're seen to be the people who've kept the autocrats in power, we're going to suffer an awful lot. And we have to learn to find out, you know, as Daniel beautifully put it, we must stop trying to sort of in a colonial way mess around with these countries and reshape them. But we've also actually got to um, get a little bit more understanding of who these people are and what they stand for and be able to engage with them properly. There is a realistic alternative. Hamas are desperate to be engaged. Um, I think that uh, one of the great problems with isolation is that it's very easy to demonise people you never meet. Um, the central problem in this conflict at heart is the fact that the vast core of the polity of Israel, the top four or five hundred people who run the country, have never met anyone from Hamas. And none of the Hamas leadership have ever met any Israelis except as their jailers in prison. That is no basis for human dialogue, peaceful living with side by side and all of that. In the end, despite all the efforts of the international peace industry, of the UN, the EU, the United States and so forth, these people have never met. And ultimately, what it comes down to is, as you know in the end, if you know your enemy, if you can eyeball your enemy and you can begin to find actually out that you've got an awful lot more in common than you imagined, you've got the beginnings of a sense of human trust and dialogue. Until these people meet, until these people engage, there is no prospect of of any future. So what everybody's trying to tell you, which is we mustn't engage with Hamas, it achieves the opposite. Um, Plainly, we need to sit down with all Palestinians and all Israeli factions and have them at the table. Thank you, Mustafa, alternatives. Uh, Okay. Well, uh, first of all, let me alert you to the fact that Palestine is not only Fatah and Hamas. Uh, and uh, by the way, there is really a growing uh, anger at both sides. A very strong anger on the Palest- in the Palestinian people against uh, this uh, use of violence in this terrible way by both sides. And uh, also very strong anger about them uh, unfolding and, uh, and breaking the national unity government. Of course, it was not uh, because of them only, but because of many other factors which I will describe. But uh, the fact that they are uh, giving, I mean, the fact that Hamas leaders come out on TV and say we liberated Gaza, uh, practically repeating the Israeli narrative of, uh, by, saying, by claiming that Gaza was liberated because, and forgetting that Gaza is still under occupation practically, or uh, people in uh, West Bank talking about building a, a whole authority without Gaza, in the case of Fatah, uh, and also competing with each other for an authority that is really elusive because it's an authority under occupation, and fighting for positions in the authority and fighting for privileges of the authority and both sides practicing clientelism and political nepotism in the worst possible way, these factors have been affecting people and making them Uh, disenchanted actually and uh, that's why of course I am mentioning this not because I belong to the third democratic alternative which is an important factor of course but but because it is important to see the whole spectrum of Palestine and Palestinian people and also to see that the alternative that I will speak about is very much relevant to the role we played as a non-Hamas, non-Fatah group in building a national unity government in the first place. It was a very successful act. It was something uh, that uh, was very, very productive and conducive. 
the Mecca agreement was just nothing but putting a stamp on something that was achieved internally by Palestinians through these negotiations. And it's an unavoidable solution. After this break, there is no solution but to go back to national unity again, but to go back to try to form a national unity government. But there is one very big question here to the world community and to, to the world at large, which is what do you mean by democracy? Because as a matter of fact, one of the biggest achievements that Palestinians have achieved under occupation is to build a democratic system. It's not a fantastic democratic system, but it's the best democratic system in the, in the Arab world. And it was having a very serious impact on the countries around us. And what is happening now in Palestine is nothing but slaughtering democracy. And uh, that reminds me of the joke about a dictator who went hunting with his aide, and they hunted uh, a lion and a rabbit. So he turned to his aide and said, we are Democrats here. So if you want the rabbit, take the rabbit. If you want the lion, take the rabbit. <laughs> and it seems like, I mean, it, it seems this is the case of democracy. If you elect uh, A, you get A. If you elect B, you get A. If you elect C, you get A. What does that mean? This talk about Tony Blair going to the area and helping reconstruct and rebuild the Palestinian Authority one more time, but this time only in West Bank. West Bank, what is West Bank? West Bank is a place under occupation. You know that the Israeli jeeps can enter any city and shoot anybody anytime they want. You know that the West Bank is cut off from each other by this horrible wall, which is 852 kilometers, three times the length of Berlin Wall and twice as high. Three times, by the way, two and a half times the length of the green, board, the green line, which is the border between West Bank and Israel. Two and a half times more than the, the borders. There can be no solution uh, except by accepting democracy as a way. Going back now, and I'm talking now about the internal Palestinian situation, going back quickly to uh, accepting each other, Allowing, I think, uh, we have made an initiative jointly, the Palestinian National Initiative and another Palestinian group called PFLP, where we are recommending uh, initiating a process to regain Palestinian national unity and to establish a transitional government and prepare for early elections. But we need guarantees that when we have elections, the results will be respected. There can be no way of, in, of imposing on Palestinians who should be representing them. This would not work. Exactly. Um, if we can focus maybe for a few more minutes uh, before taking questions on uh, the issue of uh, external actors, but in particular, if you could each say something about the, the United States, the role it plays and the policy uh, it should pursue to be most constructive. Maybe I'll start with you, Daniel. I think perhaps an important starting point is, is we've spoken a lot here about Fatah and, and, and the shortcomings in, in, in contemporary Fatah policy. One of the, the places to locate this is to understand what the Fatah gamble was. The Fatah gamble was that America would deliver the two-state solution. That's what I believe that America would carry Israel down the road as part of the Oslo process to an end of occupation. 
Now, that equation, apparently, if it were ever a correct assessment, apparently for the last seven years has not applied. And it, it, I think it's a, it's a very important point of departure. Um, and even if one could see the initial recoil of the current administration from active engagement as part of a, of a, of a ABC, anything but Clinton, and Clinton had, had obviously invested greatly in this. Um, you know, six and a half years later, uh, that becomes a pretty flimsy excuse. Um, I don't want to heap everything on the US. Um, clearly, the protagonists in the region, the parties themselves, are, are ultimately responsible for their own behavior. But I also don't want to don't want to give people a, 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 a get out of jail card free. There was, you know, a, a time when an American president could convene leaders from the region. And I'll tell you a story. On the eve of President Begin, Menachem Begin's departure for a certain Camp David summit hosted by a certain president. He met with the then leader of the Israeli opposition who came from his left. And this feeds perhaps into something that, that, that William spoke about earlier, which is that perhaps sometimes it's the, it's the more hardline actors who can go further. Begin, then the leader of the right wing in Israel, met with Shimon Peres, who was then the labor leader in Israel. And Peres' message to Begin before he departed for the summit was, of course, keeping the settlements like Yamit in the Sinai is more important than getting peace with Egypt. I'll support you, I'm the leader of the opposition, but I'll support everything you do as long as you're not going to sell out and give up the Sinai and give up your meat and give up the settlements. And yet an American president that understood that stability in that part of the world and in bringing the parties together was an American interest and then acted accordingly in his mediating role between the parties was able to deliver a Likud, Menachem Begin signature on an entire Israeli, and this was a withdrawal, <laughs> from, the, from the Sinai Peninsula, with all the settlements, and with a peace agreement between Israel and Egypt. When, during the Clinton presidency, you had Bibi Netanyahu as the Israeli Likud Prime Minister, who had campaigned against Oslo. He brought Netanyahu and Arafat together at Y River. In 1998, and there was agreement to transfer further land. It was too little. The Oslo process had been dramatically undermined by then. But it was significant. It was significant in trying to keep, keep this, 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 this precious thing from falling off a cliff. The Re Reagan established the dialogue with the PLO. For me, the question is a very simple one, because I don't want to come here and say, look, you know, Mustafa's a nice guy, and Israelis are really nice people, actually. And, and do us a favor and get involved. I don't want any favors. My, my request is a very, very basic and simple one. Act in the American national self-interest. If you think that you can restabilize the Middle East, that you can restore American credibility, that you can rebuild America's capacity to lead alliances and to make asks of your allies in the region, and that you can defeat the really dangerous radicalism of Al-Qaeda and its copycats, 
and continue your current policy on Israel-Palestine and on the Israeli-Arab conflict, then be my guest. I would argue that, Israel, that the American interest is not served by any of those things, and I feel on quite solid ground arguing that, because when your Congress asks 10 of the great and the good in a bipartisan fish fashion to come up with recommendations on Iraq, and Lee Hamilton and James Baker led the group that produced the Iraq Study Group report, very interestingly, they came up with the following finding. The report has three chapters. The middle chapter is called The External Approach and Building the Regional and International Consensus. And a significant chunk of that is all about that if America wants to change the regional environment, the first thing it has to do is get stuck back into Israeli-Arab peacemaking and Israeli-Palestinian peacemaking. And it gives some quite detailed recommendations for how to do that. And as the debate in Iraq proceeds, it's interesting for me to see that this part of the report is still the part of the report least commented on. But in a way, it's, it's one of the things that's most emphasized by the authors of the report itself. So if I look at the situation, I, I, I would say the following, following on from what, what, what William has said. American policy in Iraq has become very interesting in the last months. It has identified those who, those who want to burn down the house, namely the Al-Qaedist groups, and kind of everyone else. And what you've seen in the Sunni community in Iraq is an effort to say, you know what, if you're our ally, if we can find common cause in defeating Al-Qaeda, then even if you disagree with us on issues A to K, and you think we're an occupying force, and you think you were wrong, and you were shooting at us two months ago. If you're reading the latest reports, there are Sunni former insurgent groups that America is now making common cause with and arming because they have a common interest in defeating Al-Qaeda. And that isn't being applied elsewhere in the region. And you see Lebanon being driven off a cliff because there's this effort to, to name leaders as moderates and then embrace them in a bear hug and lock them into a position which argues against any internal political reconciliation, and it applies to Lebanon and Palestine, and it is further destabilizing the Middle East. I, I, you know, I fear that, 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 that we're at a place where, where an ideological dogma is driving out any ability to, to, to see the, the conditions on the ground. I'll say one thing about, about Israel um, to close my comments in this respect, which is, you know, I didn't like it at the time, but I'm beginning to miss it. There was an Israeli refrain that always said, let's judge the Arabs by what they do, not what they say. And we've kind of turned it on its head. And suddenly what became the most important thing was the exact language this Hamas leader or that Palestinian leader would use to describe how they can relate to Israel. Rather than saying, can you deliver a ceasefire? Let's start from the most important thing for Israel, security. Let's build it on a ceasefire. And Hamas did deliver a ceasefire. <clears throat> and I think that would have been an intelligent approach in this respect. You, you, if you look, you will see the messages that are being sent. And Williams referred to this, as has Mustafa. Read a piece in the LA Times from three days ago from Musa Abu Marzouk, who's the deputy head of Hamas in Damascus. Read a piece in the Israeli press that was translated by the advisor to Hania in the Haaretz newspaper. They are telling us we're ready for dialogue. They are saying we're not Al-Qaeda. 
They are even talking about the Turkish model, if you know the, the, the Islamic party that's in power in Turkey. They are not saying we'll burn down the house, which is the Al-Qaeda position. I fail to understand how it's in our interest to say, rather than having this group of Islamists, a relatively small group as our enemy, let's have all of them as our enemy. Where's the intelligence in trying to build, to build our enemy to that extent? And the question that, that I ask my own, my own um, country folk back in Israel is, is, are we trying to achieve what we actually tried to achieve when we got peace with Egypt and Jordan? which was acceptance, which was a workable, viable solution that could guarantee both parties' security, or are we trying to impose a Zionist narrative on the other side? It, this, 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 this demand of the right to exist is never something we asked of the Egyptians or the Jordanians. I would say if we can make peace with our neighbours, then at least we can start to rebuild the Zionist narrative amongst the Jewish community. I really don't see why we have this, 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 this in, inner appetite to, to, to demand an acceptance of the, of the Zionist narrative from our neighbours. Um, but we will need the help of external parties in doing that, and there's no more relevant external party um, than the Americans. And, you know, the luxury of misbehaviour without consequences is a very, very, very dubious luxury, whether you are an individual or whether you are a nation-state. Thank you, Daniel. Mustafa, if you wouldn't mind saying a few things about uh, the role of the United States and possibly other actors involved. If you were in the Canadian government, what would you do? And I said then I would like to ask them one thing, which is to look at the Palestinian question with Canadian eyes without Israeli glasses on. And I think the same applies to the United States more than any other place in the world. For the United States to, play, to be able to play a constructive role, or uh, even from the perspective of the interest of the United States, or even from the perspective of the interest of Israel itself, Israel must, uh, the United States must detach itself from uh, this very serious uh, adoption of the Israeli narrative, if I don't want to use other terms. But at the moment, I personally, I have been in this for a very long time, there hasn't been a situation like this one where the American policy is really not independent at all from the Israeli policy. And uh, I think it's a very deter important determining factor. The second thing is that the national unity government collapsed basically because the United States didn't want it to work. And uh, had there been a different attitude, Europe was ready, they were going to help. The, the, the fact that uh, the European Council cannot make a decision without consensus of 27 countries was abused, and uh, thus the European Union was prevented from dealing uh, directly with the national unity government. And uh, eventually, even Arab countries that were uh, sponsoring the initiative were prevented from sending uh, support to the Palestinian national unity government. So all of this happened because, in my opinion, the United States could not uh, implement an independent position uh, from Israel. And uh, that by itself uh, is a problem that has to be managed. How it will be managed, how can it be dealt with, it's a very long story, we don't have the time for that. But uh, the second point that I want to reiterate here is that uh, the United States should not engage in solving or in uh, efforts to solve the Palestinian-Israeli or Arab-Israeli conflict alone. 
there has to be an international framework. Uh, at least uh, since we are realistic people and we know that it is uh, much harder for the United States to separate itself from the Israeli narrative soon, it is very important to have other international partners engaged. And I think the idea of International Peace Conference uh, remains uh, one of the best ideas. Uh, unfortunately, it was the, 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 the sides departed from it, but it must be brought back uh, into attention. Uh, and I think uh, there is a very important other element here, which is the moral element and the, 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 the moral factor in the process. And the moral factor also includes the issue of democracy. When we speak about democracy and human rights and respecting them in China and in other parts of the world, might as well apply them to the Palestinian areas and apply them to the Israeli-Palestinian relationship. There is a... There has been, during the last maybe 10 years, a very serious deterioration in international politics. The world is going backwards. Let's be frank about this. Uh, sometimes I feel we are not living in the 21st century, but we are living in the 19th century uh, of, uh, in terms of moral values and how politics is practiced. And uh, let me tell you, this is unsustainable. It cannot be sustained. And uh, the key position is, is the same thing that Baker, said, uh, Baker and the group said in the report. It has to be clear that the only way to gain stability in the Middle East, and probably worldwide, is to solve the Palestinian issue. The Palestinian issue cannot continue to be uh, there because as long as it is there, it will be a very important destabilizing factor. It has an effect on all Palestinians. It has an effect on all Arabs. It has an effect on all Muslims. And it does have an effect on many, many, many countries of this world who would like to see this issue resolved and as soon as possible. Um, I'd like to reserve most of the rest of the time for, for questions. Um, if you have a... Okay. Um, and, um, and some two, already up here, actually. Already. Two extremely articulate answers. Um, I th believe there's, a, there's an advertising campaign in, in America which goes something like, friends don't let friends drive drunk. And uh, I think it's a very, very good analogy for the situation at the moment. Because, you know, as you know, in Northern Ireland, there's a similar thing. You know, the Protestant community were in the ascendance. And, you know, unless somebody said to you, to them, you're going to have to do something, they're not going to do something. And that's always, you know, as we know, that's the reality of human behaviour. The important thing about this is the moral urgency of the situation. It's the thing that, as somebody as a regular visitor to Gaza, I think upsets me most, is this general sense of complacency that this thing can drift on and on and on. The majority of people in Gaza are living on $2 a week. This is less than people had before in Iraq, before the oil for food programme. These are, you know, I should think at least half the children in Gaza now wet their beds every single night through the sustained fear of the, um, of, of the sort of barrages of shelling that, that have gone on for the last few years. These are people growing up in the most desperate circumstances. I've seen small children drinking out of puddles because there's no water, because it's switched off 23 hours a day. Open sewage everywhere. This is a humanitarian disgrace. You know, hardly, you know, there's hardly an example of people living in worse conditions around the world, bar Darfur and one or two others. So, you know, it's just important to inject a sense of urgency anybody who comes from a moral position, that, the, that, that these people shouldn't be having to live like this. Thank you, William. Uh, with the remaining 
20, 15, 20 minutes or so, I'd like to have the panelists respond to, to some of your questions. Uh, I know that there's been a great many submitted already and many more, I'm sure, than we will be able to uh, accommodate and respond to today. Uh, but I will say that we will make every effort to respond uh, with uh, responses on our website to anything that's been submitted today on, on, on cards if we can't get to all of your questions today. Um, I want to start with one here that's uh, related to uh, the question that we originally posed that we didn't actually get to about the viability of a two-state solution. This question is worded somewhat differently, and I hope you'll respond to it. Uh, it goes, the common reference to a two-state solution in the conflict between Israel and Palestine seems to have increasingly become a reference to, to separation between two states, a Jewish-Israeli state and an Arabic-Palestinian state. Could you comment on this increasing emphasis on religious and ethnic cleavage and its likely future trajectory and impl implementation? Sorry, implications. Um, Dr. Bargu. For me? Well, I brought with me a map. This is the map of, uh, that Israel is practically creating as a Palestinian state. Because, and you can see this is the map of the West Bank. And this is what is the result of building the wall. And you can see there is an eastern uh, wall that is not built yet, which takes away most of the Jordan Valley. So practically, the whole idea of statehood is being destroyed. I mean, where Israel is practically annexing 46 or 50 percent of the West Bank. And uh, this has been the evolution. I don't know if you can see it from here, but... When you look at the maps, you put them in sequence, you discover that practically what we see here is the withering of the idea of a Palestinian state. In my opinion, this whole notion of separating West Bank from Gaza is one more step in the direction of killing the idea of two-state solution. Uh, one more step of transforming the idea of two states, of a Palestinian state, into nothing but uh, uh, instead of having a state with sovereignty over with borders, with uh, capital, with uh, with viability and so on, just make it some kind of self-governing authority under occupation that runs the Palestinian internal affairs, but that has no sovereignty and uh, no real control of anything. So practically, and we've been warning against this. I've spoken at least here in the United States maybe more than 40 or 50 times uh, since Oslo was signed, about the fact that Israel is killing practically the, uh, the idea of two-state solution by continuation of settlement activity. And the very simple question here is why the world community and the Palestinian Authority at that time and the United States accepted to allow Israel, when Oslo was signed, to continue to build settlements. Because there is a very serious contradiction here between building settlements and having a Palestinian state. And so... I personally believe that Israel has washed its hands off completely from the idea of a Palestinian state, at least within the existing political system in Israel. And uh, all they are trying to do now is to cut off Gaza completely. And for them, it's a good bargain because you get rid of one and a half percent of Eretz Israel, as they call it, in exchange of getting rid of 30% of the demographic formula, which is one and a half million people, and then try to make the population of the West Bank an issue of population rather than, a land, rather than an issue of a country, and maybe try to link it to Jordan or to other uh, solutions. But basically, I can see that the consistent Israeli policy was a policy directed at eliminating the idea of two-state solution. Unless 
there is a very strong external and international intervention in one way or another to exercise serious pressure to reverse facts very soon, then I am worried about the fact that the idea of two-state solution could be simply killed by these irreversible facts that are built on the ground. One has to see that. And then the big question would be for Palestinians, what is the alternative? For us as Palestinians, we, we never had a problem with the, with, the, with the point of view of having a one-state solution. I mean, uh, with, uh, as Nelson Mandela used to say, one man, one vote, one woman, one vote also. And, uh, and uh, have, if they want, uh, to have a unified uh, state, uh, we are ready for that. The, the problem is not ours. The problem is on the Israeli side. But to think that you can kill the two-state solution and at the same time accept Palestinians accept to live in apartheid forever, I think that is an impossibility. So what will happen? It's hard to say. I can only say that there is only one alternative to two-state solution, which I still support. And that is a one-state solution with full democratic rights for everybody. Thank you, Mustafa. Daniel, maybe. Because we, yeah. Yeah. yeah, Mustafa's filled um, that one up. This next question reads, the point was made in the discussion that nothing can be accomplished unless all points of view, even the most extreme, are represented. <coughs> Do you fail to see the irony that no one who favors a West Bank first policy is included in this panel? Neither is there anyone to make the case for refusing to deal with Hamas until they recognize Israel and renounce violence. Is there nothing to be said for this position? I'll answer that one. Um, no, I think it's very important. Okay, can I just say yeah. well, one thing very quickly? Yeah. I think that in part that's to us as the organizers, the Carter yeah, yeah. organizers yeah. of the panel. Yeah. So let me I, just say very quickly, uh, yes, I do recognize the irony as posed in the question. However, I think the answer for us is, is that the West Bank first policy has been broadly defended by, by the U.S. government. It's covered. There's much understanding of that policy and the rationale for it to the extent that uh, that's out there in public discussion. And the idea of this panel was to provide some analysis and some opposite views. Of course, there may, there may be other opportunities in the future to have a, a panel that's more far-reaching in terms of representation at the panel. But, right. on, the, on the point of engaging extremes, you know, before they've recognized Israel and done all the things that everyone would want them to do, I mean, I could take you back to the Irish example. If we'd asked the IRA to renounce its vision of United Ireland and violence before we talk to it, we'd still be at war with it. You know, it, it, in, in, engagement doesn't have to mean endorsement, you know, but engagement can lead you to the objectives you have at the end. There's, there's a straightforward reason why Hamas will not recognize Israel and renounce violence um, um, you know, uh, up front, as you might say, because they believe in the Palestinian narrative. That's what Fatah did, and look where it got them. Nowhere. The only weapons that... Hamas have are the recognition and the renunciation of violence. And they're only going to you know, put those cards on the table, as you might say, if you mix my, my metaphors dreadfully, but they'll only, they'll only do that once they're absolutely convinced the international community will ensure a Palestinian state on 67 borders. And you know, nobody seems to sit there and say, well, are we forcing the Israeli government to recognize a Palestinian state on 67 borders? I don't hear any noise about that one. It, it, it is a bit what Mustafa says, you know, it's, it's listening to one narrative and not the other. It's terribly easy at a distance sit there and say, why can't these guys recognize Israel? What's the fuss? Well, there is a fuss. And actually, if they did recognize Israel tomorrow, they'd lose half their movement. 
you'd get a real Hamas, like a real IRA or, or whatever. So um, that's why we have to engage them, and that's why we have to engage them. We don't have to endorse them, but that's why we have to engage them and try and achieve what we want to achieve at the end. But we must always remember in this, you have to see parity. You know, you have to play fair. And if you don't play fair, you can't really be the sort of impartial figure that's going to deliver a solution. May I add just one, one little point? You see, the, I personally always consider that if we want to solve the problem with Israelis and with, uh, with Israel, we have to first start with one question in any negotiations. And that question is, are we all equal human beings or not? Mm. And when we are accepted as equal human beings, then we have equal rights and equal obligations. If that principle is acceptable, then what is wrong with having a meeting, like International Peace Conference, where both sides come and recognize each other? What is wrong with uh, Israel accepting the idea of reciprocity? The problem in the Israeli narrative is that they want all Palestinians, till the very last of them, to recognize Israel, accept Israel, it's not enough for them that 75% of the Palestinians support the two-state solution. It's not enough for them that, his, that Hamas says that we delegate to Abbas, Abu Mazen, the full responsibility to conduct negotiations with Israel fully and completely. That's what we did in the national unity government. It's not for, enough for them that Abbas recognizes Israel on daily basis, you know. For them, you have to get the very last Palestinian to accept Israel before Israel even starts to talk to the Palestinians. That is the problem. People negotiate because they have differences. And they reach the point of agreement at the end of negotiations. Not one side have to give up everything before we start negotiating so that the other side would accept to negotiate with it. <laughs> you see, this is the problem. I challenged publicly on TV the Israeli leaders, the main leaders, if one of them would appear on TV and say that he accepts that East Jerusalem will become part of the Palestinian state and become a, a part of the solution, I bet you there will be none. But we are not saying, before we negotiate with Israel, Israel must accept and declare that East Jerusalem is the capital of the Palestinian people. So the question here is about reciprocity. Is it acceptable about us? being acceptable to each other as equal human beings. Daniel, any comment? Not. Okay. Here's a, a question to William Seeger directly. Uh, what is the most important thing we can do in Atlanta to diffuse tension related to the Muslim community here? I think that um, uh, I'm no expert on issues relating to the Muslims in the United States. And I think that um, the situation is very different in Europe. Um, I know that the vast majority of the Muslims in the United Kingdom come from the Indian subcontinent originally, and they have uh, a colonial overlay in their psyche, which um, has an enormous impact. Um, if you know, if you grew up in Ireland, you know, you would have imprinted in your knowledge of Irish history, Cromwell, the potato famine, you know, all the kinds of uh, examples, the black and tans of British behaviour. And again, if you grow up as a, as a Muslim from that kind of background, you'd, be to, you'd put it imprinted into your mind, would be a mistrust of Britain from its colonialist past, and in particular from the Indian mutiny 
and Britain's assassination of you know, the entire Muslim leadership after the Indian mutiny. And that, that lead, led to an enormous mistrust. Similarly, when Muslims came to Britain, they were brought there for economic reasons because our textile mills wanted cheap workers who didn't drink. And um, Yorkshire being the kind of place where most of our textile mills were, and Yorkshire being probably one of the least friendly areas in Britain vis-a-vis uh, arrivals from other countries, um, it suited both communities to keep each other isolated. Um, and that, of course, has created enormous problems. One of the things that we all admire about the United States is it's an incredible ability to attract people from all over the world, from all um, nooks and crannies, from all cultures, all religions, and make people feel that they've got equal opportunities and equal chances. Um, so, I, 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 you know, I would, I would hate to even preach in any way what you, the United States, should be doing about your own Muslim communities. All I would say is, you know, as always, you know, preach tolerance and, um, and be open and try and listen and try and understand how other people think and how other people worship and what's important to other people, and to try and find the commonalities that exist in their value system with yours. And that's just, I think, an important sort of, you know, human message we should all have. We have a really scary, dangerous problem um, in Europe, and probably the worst place in Europe for that problem is the United Kingdom. I don't get a sense that you have that kind of problem here. Thank you. Um, I think we have time for uh, responses to one last question, and this uh, last one is uh, somewhat forward-looking, so I'll ask you all to uh, maybe combine this with any final comments and as you think about looking into the looking glass. Um, the question reads, there's a growing tension between Hamas and Fatah and the West Bank, and many Palestinians are expecting things to erupt in the next few months if the situation persists. How does the West Bank first contribute to or will contribute to this, or will it find a way to diffuse it? Uh, I guess maybe more generally, uh, you know, what, what can we expect in the future? And if violence erupts, what does that mean? Well, um, I think it's a very, very dangerous time. And uh, I think uh, one of the things that uh, worries me again, I talked about the moral urgency of the situation vis-a-vis -vis the plight of um, people in Gaza and of Palestinians generally, whose, you know, whose lifestyle is perhaps not, um, not to be compared with, with the Israelis. Um, and that's not to mean that I'm taking sides, I just think that their plight is, is desperate. And when people are hungry, and when people are armed, that, um, that, you know, it doesn't take much to stir things up. And when people have no political horizon, and no financial horizon, it means that... Um, you know, their perspective, if there's no effective social contract, as you might say, um, is warped and is different. Uh, I think while we continue not to offer a political horizon to the Palestinians, who have, after all, done the one thing that we hoped, we the West, would hope would happen more and more in the Middle East, which is hold a free and fair election, the more we're setting ourselves up for more and more danger. And the most likely people to suffer from all of this, on top of the Palestinians themselves, will be the Israelis. I think one of the things that I find most disturbing, and I think Daniel spelled it out earlier on, is that within the Knesset, the Israeli situation is weak. Uh, everyone's talking about when will the next election will happen, or Iraq, or Iran, or Syria, but not the Palestinians. If there's a collapse in Palestinian authority in the West Bank, which is, the, I think, a likely next step um, uh, as the sort of uh, the one, the, you know, the, the, the original um, West Bank first policy um, collapses. Um, we're in danger of having some very, very scary and dangerous people 
uh, getting a foothold in those places. And I actually think that there is a real danger that the, if there's a real collapse of Palestinian authority and the Palestinian political process, there never will be a partner for peace. There never will be a two-state solution. And my concern all the way along in this, from an Israeli perspective, is that the Israelis have worked this out too late. And you know, in 10 years' time, when they desperately want that two-state solution, it won't be on offer anymore. So um, that's why you know, I would urge, urge you, you know, to, to think about this urgency, not just on a moral front, but you know, from our, all of our securities, that uh, it's absolutely critical that we push this forward fast because the only thing that will happen otherwise is more and more blood will be spilled. And it won't just be there, it'll be on the streets of London as well. Thank you, William. Well, first of all, let me say that uh, West Bank first is uh, an option that is not mentioned at all in Palestine. I mean, uh, uh, when I mentioned it in the meeting of the Central Council of the PLO, uh, and uh, many of the Fatah people jumped from the hole and said, who's saying that? Nobody's saying that. We, nobody of us is advocating West Bank first. And of course they knew about it. But, and I referred actually to Rob Molly's article, which was a very good article about this. And I told them uh, in the United States, this is the main title, West Bank first, West Bank first. So I think this option is morally unacceptable. It is uh, politically incorrect. It is destructive and anti-democratic and undemocratic too. Uh, talking about West Bank first is nothing but a formula to complicate the situation further. And also it's a formula that would further complicate the, the humanitarian situation that was very well described by William in Gaza Strip. It's inhuman to separate Palestinians from each other. It's inhuman to keep Gaza under this terrible, this terrible siege. It is totally inhuman for Israelis, uh, Israeli leaders to come out, and sometimes Palestine, some Palestinian leaders to come out and say, we should give them enough food, but barely to live, so that they would not die. This is, this is really, for me, this is absolutely inhuman. And I know that uh, politicians can be sometimes inhuman, but I think there is a limit to how far one can go. And uh, that is the limit. It cannot be acceptable. Besides, politically, it's, it's not going to produce anything. It will only make uh, the Palestinian Authority look like a bunch of collaborators, you know, and uh, that are working against the interest of their own people. And this would strengthen radical elements if you want, uh, rather than weaken radical elements. So that, for me, is not acceptable. My last comment is, please, please, look at the Palestinian question as President Carter managed to do after a very long experience, I was so touched by his book because, because he, he saw through the situation, the reality, and the reality that the Palestinian issue is, a Palestinian, is an issue of national liberation. It's an issue of people who simply want to be finally free. People who have been deprived from freedom almost for 600 years. We didn't have the ability to have self-determination and run our own lives for more than 600 years. And during the last 100 years, we've been oppressed, prosecuted, dispossessed. And what I say here has by no means undermines or affects the right of Jewish people to also live in good, uh, to have good life and live in peace. And by no means, it does not contradict the fact that the, the Jewish people have suffered a lot in history and suffered a lot in Second World War and suffered a lot from 
from the, the, the ghettos and so on. But at the same time, the suffering of the Jewish people does not justify the suffering of the Palestinian people, especially that Palestinians were not party of prosecuting or oppressing Jewish people. You understand? It's very important to understand that and understand that there is no justification to continue what is happening in Palestine. Palestine is an issue of liberation. Palestine is an issue of independence. It's an issue of freedom. And like people in India, although it was a big country in comparison, had the right to be free and independent, Palestinians have the right to be free and independent. And like people in South Africa had the right to get rid of apartheid, Palestinians also have the right to get rid of apartheid. Daniel, closing remarks? Closing remarks. Also this question if you. Yes. Um, let, let me just begin by referring to the notion of separation that, that came up earlier. Um, I, I don't think separation is the only paradigm through which to, to, to see that the two-state solution, but yes, it means a separation into two political ent entities. But even then, at least on the Israeli side, there, there, there'll be no escaping, and I hope it will be an occasion to, to, to recognize the need to address the fact that Israel has and will continue to have a minority Arab-Palestinian population that is almost 20% of the citizenship of Israel. So, I mean, there are people who are trying to move us in the direction of, uh, of transferring the rights of, uh, uh, of uh, you know, drawing a border which would take in as many Israeli-Palestinians uh, as possible. But, but, you know, so I, I, I'm against that. And I do think uh, the challenge for Israel and, and, and the onus is on Israel in this respect is to demonstrate that not only can we be post-occupation, but that Israel can also guarantee equal rights for its own citizens. Um, you know, I grew up in a UK before I moved to Israel where the, the flag is a cross and the God in, who's saving the Queen in my anthem probably isn't the same God as me and the holidays in the calendar are the Christian holidays. None of that offended me when there wasn't structural institutionalized inequality. And I think you could, you could defuse a lot of Israel's own identity if we could get beyond occupation and if we could learn to treat our own minority, non-Jewish citizenry uh, with equality. Israel's right to exist and, and the challenge, why, why is it so unreasonable to demand that? It's not unreasonable. It's reasonable, it sounds sensible, it is sensible, but it, as, as was said here, it can't be unidirectional. And I don't see how one's going to get anywhere making that demand in the abstract. You know what, if we were sitting down and having a negotiation, then we could negotiate where Israel is, where the Palestinians are, but to make it a precondition, I, mean, I think that, that writ large, this is one of the problems we have to address today. This notion of preconditions. If you have issues with an adversary, at least try to get around the table with them without preconditions. And by the way, when you set yourself up in the precondition frame of thinking, <coughs> then you have to find an excuse to walk yourself back from the precondition. And then you find yourself what, what is always referred to as, ah, you're, you're rewarding bad behavior because they haven't changed their behavior, but it's become so urgent for you to talk to them that you've dropped your preconditions. And it means that the whole notion of preconditions in the first place is stupid. If you remember when Secretary Rice finally met with his Syrian foreign minister, Walid Mualim, everyone said, ah, you're rewarding Syrian bad behavior. Well, if you hadn't cut off the dialogue in the first place, then you wouldn't have had to, to swallow that medicine, so to speak. <laughs> um, 
Look, I think the two-state mantra, uh, my fear is that two states is becoming all things to all people. And, 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 and we're forgetting that, 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 that two states needs to be viable. And viability is not only territorial. It is territorial, but you know, I, I, I'd urge people to, to, in my own country, but also here, sometimes more is less. And sometimes less is more because what we're trying to deliver is not just a signing ceremony where we can say, oh, good, we managed to find a Palestinian who would sign off on this funny looking thing as a Palestinian state. We need to try and create something that is sustainable, that can create stability, that can create hope and a future for both peoples and dignity. If one side walks away from that process feeling that their dignity has been tr dragged through the mud, then that's not going to be sustainable. So, so I do think there are Israelis who, 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 even in the leadership, who would be willing to, 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 to accept your challenge, Mustafa. They're too timid. They're, um, they, they, they have, understandably, a real question as to the carrying capacity on your side. I think they've contributed greatly to the lack of a carrying capacity on your side. One thing that hasn't been mentioned today, but, but I'd like to raise is that one of the, the ways that we can address that is the Arab League initiative. Yes. You now have a willingness on the part of all the Arab states to say, if you get on board with a comprehensive solution with your neighbors, then we're there as well. Why the Israelis think that we can trust more the Saudis, I don't know. But this is the exotic thing. We've never had the, the men in the, the big white schmutters come to Jerusalem before. So this is now the, this is now the, 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 but if we can use it, if now Israelis can say, you know what, we have real question marks regarding the Palestinians, but if the whole Arab world stands behind this, then perhaps we can overcome our concerns. And, and, and I, I, I close by saying then, this. Then you, want, then you would want Iranians as well. <laughs> <laughs> I fear you might be right, but we won't go there. <laughs> you see, I think what, what, what should be concerning all of us, and what you've heard the description here, is if the Palestinian public turn away from the political process, if they no longer see there's legitimacy in the political process or the capacity of the political process to deliver, it may be lovely if they all turn to Mustafa's party, but they may not. And the plague on both your houses approach to Fatah and Hamas could lead us in much, much more dangerous directions if the political process is viewed to have lost legitimacy. Two last thoughts. One, Mustafa referred to contemporary Jewish history, and it, and it does play a role here. And you're very well positioned to understand that because you see how how by using fear in your own society since 9-11, what it has done to the erosion of values in your own society. Now imagine that writ large in terms of, in terms of contemporary, in, in terms of the, the, the contemporary Jewish experience. And unfortunately, everywhere in the world, there will always be people who, if it can serve their narrow interest, or if it will, will play into and will feed on, and will manipulate that fear. And unfortunately, it's something that we found very difficult to, to get away from. We were close in terms of now and what can happen. We were close, I believe, when, when the Mecca agreement was made to having a Palestinian 
uh, and we need this. It's a prerequisite, not, not because I'm looking for an excuse to, not to negotiate, but a Palestinian side with, with carrying capacity who can come. You know, two negotiating sides need to, there needs to be an element of, of a balance of deterrence in some ways between them. And I think it was serious, and Mustafa was a minister in that government. Now, I think we might get there again. And my fear is that the alternative, what, you know, when you drive a society too far and a society is divided and you drive home those divisions, we're now in the second decade of ungovernability and chaos in a place like Somalia. And, and it will be terrible for all of us, first and foremost for, for Mustafa and, and, and his people, if that's where the Palestinian situation goes. And I'd say this, you know what? If you can't get your heads around this, as the United States, do no harm. Do no harm. Let the Palestinians work this out. They had a Mecca deal. You armed up one security faction of one part of Fatah, and we've seen where it led. So if you can't do something positive, at least do no harm. Thank you. Thank you. We've, we've gone over time. Uh, time is up, I'm afraid. But I'd like to thank you all for attending and for your interest and for your questions. And once again, if you could thank the panelists for their insightful analysis. This has been a podcast from the Carter Center, online at cartercenter.org.